Let's pray together as we do offertory. Awkward, but that's okay. We can do that. Holy and gracious God, we praise you for who you are. You are the high, high God. You are the everlasting God. You are the God who sanctifies. You are the God who saves. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit, to continue to send your Holy Spirit this morning, to penetrate our hearts with your words, to change us from the inside out, so that we can advance your kingdom, so that we can bring the lost and call them home, so that we can bring healing and restoration to broken lives and bodies. We long to be your hands and your feet. So empower us, Lord. Open our hearts and open our minds to your word this morning. In Jesus' name. I would strongly encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, to go get one. Because we're going to do a deep dive this morning. There's a couple different things in Acts 19 that really slam me as far as themes. And I'm going to try to dabble in both of those. But that means that whether it's a mobile device or uh, the old-fashioned kind like I have here, we're going to want to follow along. So we're looking at Acts 19. Paul is in Ephesus. A little bit of background. Do we happen to have a map that we can throw up there? No? Okay. Ephesus is in Asia, but not like China, India, Japan, Asia. It's Asia Minor, which was a province that's basically, if you, if you can visualize the nation of Turkey, which maybe you can't. If you go home, maybe you can Google that. But about the western half of the nation of Turkey is the province of Asia. And Ephesus is located there. So that's what we're talking about when we refer to, refer to Asia in this passage just so you have that in your, in your mind. The other thing, just some more background, is just a reminder that Paul is traveling through um, Gentile, a Gentile world with a message that came out of um, Messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. And so that has a big effect on what happens in Acts 19 how the message is conveyed, and it speaks directly to us in this day and age. Ephesus was filled with just a milieu of cults and idols. Artemis was the big dog. Uh, there was a big temple built to Artemis, which we'll show you uh, later on. And so that was the primary kind of cult in Ephesus. But there was a synagogue in Judaism. There was the cult of the imperial cult, which obviously worshipped the emperor, and everybody had to at least say that, even if they didn't really believe it. There was uh, all kinds of sorcery and magic that had come up from Egypt. And so there, was a, there were a million different things going on in Ephesus. Talk about multicultural, multi-religion, anything kind of went at that point. And so that's the world that Paul steps into. This is his second trip to Ephesus. He was there in chapter 18 when he ended his second journey. This is the beginning of his third journey. 
So there's two primary themes that I see here, and there's a lot of stuff, so please forgive me for referring to notes. I'm going to do that quite a bit today, but the first one is how does the Acts 19 setting and Paul's ministry speak to us in our context today? And the, the, what I, the thing I want you to take home is this. Our language and our understanding of the world must change from what was to what is. Our understanding of the world and the language we use must change from what was to what is. Because the world has changed and we no longer live in the world that many of us grew up in, especially within the church. We grew up in the world of Christendom when the church had kind of primary say over many things that happen in our culture, in our government, in our society. Those days are gone, just gone. And we now live in a, a highly diverse culture where there is no commonly accepted set of values or no common direction. The second thing I think that we need to think about is, are we ready, are we ready for the spiritual warfare that will come as we advance the kingdom of Christ. This passage is all about the kingdom advancing and then demonic or spiritual counterattacks coming up against that advancement. So are we ready if we want to advance the kingdom for that to come? There's three types of spiritual warfare that take place in this passage. This might be the only place in the Bible where in one chapter you have all three kinds. There's ground level spiritual warfare, which is like a demon fighting against a person who is empowered by God. Ground level, one to one. Then there is occult level spiritual warfare where there's an entire cult that's on one side and believers on the other. So the bar is raised and there's more spiritual power and authority. And then finally, there is strategic level spiritual warfare, which is in this case, an entire region. And there's a territorial spirit who is Artemis, who is fighting against the gospel. And so if the gospel, if Paul being empowered by God wins this fight, It's a huge blow to the spiritual forces that basically run rampant over the area of of Asia, as we see it here. So there's three levels, and we're going to go to verse 8, and we're going to start there, and we're going to dive in. So Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Boom, right away the kingdom is advanced. He is persuasively arguing. He's getting the message across. The other thing that's interesting is three months is a pretty good run for Paul in a synagogue. Many times he's like given the boot like day one or within weeks. So three months is a pretty good run. So the kingdom is being advanced. What happens? But, there's the big but. But some of them became obstinate, refused to believe, and publicly maligned the way. Instantly, we have spiritual counterattack. And people dig in their heels. They say, we don't want to go there. And dark spiritual forces motivate them or empower them to come up against Paul. And they start to speak ill of the way, which is the church, and speak um, uh, negative, not just negatively, but really malign it and knock it down and say horrible things about the church that existed and about Paul's message. 
So right away, we have advanced counterattack. So what happens? So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussion daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This is a huge event, and I'll tell you why. Paul is led to a new methodology right here, right out of the gate. After three months in the synagogue, he has been speaking to people who understand messianic prophecy from a Jewish perspective, both Jews and Gentiles who believe the message. So he is speaking from one foundation, one perspective there. Now he goes to the Hall of Tyrannus, who was a philosophy teacher, and he's speaking to Gentiles, and their perspective of the world has nothing to do, and they may know nothing about messianic prophecy. Their mindset is Greco-Roman philosophy. So Paul does a sea change, just a, a huge change in how he has to deliver the message of the gospel. Now, it helps that he's from Tarsus, which is in the southeast corner of where Turkey is. So he grew up in an environment where, even though he was raised to be a Pharisee, he was exposed to Greco-Roman philosophy. So that helps. But his audience is different. The culture is different. How he speaks and explains things is different. That's where we are right now in the United States. I have really good friends who are Hindu, dedicated Hindus. So do I understand the Hindu religion well enough that I can communicate the gospel effectively over and against what they believe? I never knew that I would have to deal with that. In a few weeks, we're having a family reunion here, about 20 people, and 12 of those people don't walk with the Lord in any way, shape, or form. Most of them, the only time they're in a church is a wedding or a funeral. So they don't know the gospel, they don't speak the gospel, they don't understand the language that we speak. So if I share the gospel with them, it has to come from a perspective that respects and understands the way they look at life in the world. But growing up in the church, and we who have kind of stayed around the church, even if we haven't always been engaged, we understand that language. And somehow in the back of our heads, we think, well, the church will do this. Or we might say, when revival comes, the Holy Spirit will take care of it, so I don't have to worry about it. But those days are history. We need to understand we need to understand how to speak to somebody who's Muslim, somebody who's an atheist, somebody who's, who's Buddhist, and how to effectively communicate the gospel and the love of Jesus to them so they see a contrast. So that is a giant, just a giant word in this passage. It jumps out to me. Verse 10. This went on for two years. That's really amazing. So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. This is a gigantic advancement of the gospel. Uh, just unprecedented. So his disciples evidently were learning the gospel, learning how to communicate well, and then being sent out into the culture, into the countryside to share the gospel. And in the book of Revelation, the first three chapters, right, they're to the seven churches of Asia. Well, that is Ephesus and then six communities 
that form a semicircle kind of around Ephesus. So it's obvious that the disciples went out and advanced the kingdom and spread the gospel there, established home churches, and people were believers. That's exciting stuff to me. So now we're going to get into ground level warfare. Verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. The kingdom advances again, this time really advancing. The kingdom is casting out demons. People are being healed. So this is a whole another level of spiritual warfare, which the kingdom is winning and advancing the gospel. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Now, there might have been some success there, because it just says some were doing it. It doesn't say that they failed. It said they were doing this. Seven sons of Siva, say that fast, really, you know, five or ten times. A Jewish, Jewish priest were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? The man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So the kingdom had a huge advancement, and now there's a counterattack, right? This demon says, I don't know you, and he jumps on these guys and, and beats up all seven of them and sends them out of the house. So it appears that we have advancement and then a successful counterattack. But what's interesting is what happens next. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. Now, how much is this like Jesus on the cross? Demonic forces, satanic forces, think they have a victory. But what happens? In reality, the kingdom advances again. Why? Because in this case, these people, they, they are steeped in all these different cults. They live in a spiritual world where they see things happening all the time around them. And they learn that even the demon says, I know Jesus. And I know about Paul. And this hammers people because they think, oh my goodness. If even the demonic realm knows about Jesus and knows that he has authority, what does that do to us, to our beliefs, to our cult? And so these people flip and turn to Jesus, realizing that he is the ultimate spiritual authority and that the, whatever they worship does not have that authority. It's amazing flip. So the kingdom advances again. Now we move to occult level warfare. Verse 19, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. 
In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So here we have magicians and sorcerers who realize that Jesus has more authority and is a greater God than who they are worshiping and serving. And so they turn to Jesus, they turn to God, and they bring their books to burn, which is really significant because it does several things. First, it, dis- it discredits what they were doing. Second, of course, it saves them. But third, they burn their books, which is telling everybody around, this isn't working. You need to worship Jesus instead of practicing magic. And by destroying the books, now that knowledge can't be passed on to another generation. The interesting thing about this is 50,000 drachmas today is estimated to be four or five million dollars worth of books. And this says a number of sorcerers, not a huge crowd, just a number. So these individuals brought incredibly valuable books that they had invested their entire lives in to purchase, and they burn them. Okay, let's stop and look in the mirror. Are we willing, am I, is Paul Jones willing to burn everything I've worked for in my 61 years of life to advance the gospel? Will I burn my house or give it away? Will I just take all my retirement funds and just give them away, invest them in ministry, or just walk away and leave them? I really struggle with that. That is probably my biggest struggle in life. Am I doing enough? Is my generosity what Jesus is calling me to do, or is it just kind of a lame imitation of what Jesus is calling me to do? As Americans, I think the American church really struggles with this. Because for so many of us, our idea of being blessed is material and physical And then you read the lives of the disciples. How many of them were physically and materially blessed during their ministry? They were all martyred. But as Americans, we measure ourselves, our success, our lives. Is our house big enough? Are our countertops the right kind? Is our car the right kind to make life as convenient as possible? Is our wardrobe purchased at the right place? Can we brag about what our 401k is earning to our buddies at work? That's how we measure our lives. And are we willing to punt that and walk away from it and measure our lives by how many people we impact for the gospel of Jesus Christ? You can think about that for a while. So clearly the kingdom advances in ground level warfare, occult level warfare, but now the fireworks start. Now it gets serious. This has just been warm up. Artemis had owned this city for a very long time. Do you have that picture of the temple of Artemis up there? Yes, Marilyn does. Thanks, Marilyn. This temple was built, this one was started in 323 B.C. 
It is a massive building. It is much larger than the Parthenon in Athens. It was 450 feet long, 225 feet wide. It had 127 pillars or columns. They were 60 feet tall and four feet in diameter. This thing took 100 years to build. That tells you something about the people of Ephesus and where their hearts were. They spent 100 years of their community, time, money, and labor to build a temple to a territorial spirit. She probably, it, I should say, really, even though they said it was a she, it had been worshipped there for 2,000 years probably already before this time. So as long as from Jesus to now, that same time span, the people in Ephesus had been worshipping Artemis in various shapes and forms and through various cults. It started with a meteor that fell and landed. And so they thought their argument at this time was that was from Zeus. And because of the way it was shaped and looked, they thought that it must be female. And so they worshiped this as Zeus's daughter. And it became the goddess of fertility. So Artemis owned this community. Let's go to verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus And in practically the whole province of Asia, he says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty." Let's just read a couple more verses there. When they had heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the entire city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Now, this is interesting for many reasons. First of all, it just says the theater. It doesn't explain this context. This is the grand theater, which was built by the emperor Claudius just shortly before this event happened. This thing held 24,500 people. This was a huge building. The United Center for a concert in Chicago holds 23,500. And for a hockey game, the seats are 19,717, just in case you're wondering. So this was bigger than the United Center of Chicago. And these people rush in and fill this thing up. It's in, the entire community is there screaming and yelling and chanting. So it's a complete mob. Isn't it interesting, as I read this, 
And as I read Acts and I see how many times there are mobs and protests and civil disturbance, and then I watch the news and I read the headlines and I realize, wow, some things just never change. That methodology, the same one that got Jesus crucified, is still at work in our world today, all over the place. Mobs and riots, mobs and riots. Gives you an idea of maybe the source of some of that stuff. But what this tells you is just the huge impact that Paul and his disciples were having on the community. The assembly was in confusion, 32. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. So the Jews thought, this is our chance to defy Paul and to to discredit the gospel, so we're going to send our guy up there to speak. Well, he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people, but when they realized he was a Jew, they shouted in unison for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So are we seeing anti-Semitism there? You just wonder, don't you? And so we see this huge counterattack coming against the gospel of Jesus Christ at a level that's way up here where this territorial spirit of Artemis is trying to hang on to its region, hang on to the province of Asia, and not let the gospel take a foothold. So this is huge stuff. Are we ready for this kind of spiritual warfare? Are we steeped in the word? Are we spending the time in prayer to arm ourselves with the weapons of warfare? What's really interesting, what I would challenge you guys to do is when you get home, read this again, and then read the book of Ephesians. Because the book of Ephesians was written from this experience of Paul. It was written several years later when he was in prison the first time in Rome. And so he's writing back to the people who had experienced this riot, who had lived under the cult of Artemis, and who were now believers. And so then when you read Ephesians, it's, oh my. In Ephesians 6, when he talks about put on the armor... Man, now I get why this is so important. Because we need to be ready and we need to be wearing the armor that we find in Ephesians 6. Finally, the city clerk, who is equivalent to the mayor, in verse 35, quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image? which fell from heaven. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet, not do anything rash. And then he basically goes on to say, we don't really have a reason to be rioting. And if Rome finds out that we're doing this, they're going to send in troops and we're going to pay a steep price for this civil commotion that we've created. And so finally, in a very subtle way, through someone who is probably a believer along with many of the other officials in the area, the kingdom advances again and steps back in. And Artemis is discredited. And after this, the cult of Artemis 
takes a long decline, and finally this temple is torn down in the year 400. Ironically enough, it's torn down by a Christian mob. So go figure. But at this point, the tide turned, and the gospel expanded, and the cults, the sorcery, the magic was discredited and all began to decline. So what are some other messages that we can take from this? As I've said many times already this morning, we need to prepare ourselves for spiritual warfare. We pray for revival. I pray for revival. And so I want the Holy Spirit to come and bring revival to our church and bring awakening to America. But am I preparing myself to be part of the war? The other things that are interesting is just the comparisons. In the first century, globalism was growing because of the Roman Empire and the Chinese Empire. Globalism now is taken for granted. It's inherent. We had two nations that dominated the world, Rome and China. Today, we have two nations that dominate the world, the United States and China. Interesting, huh? That culture was widely diverse. Our culture is becoming more and more diverse by the day. We had shifting cultural contexts then with all the different cults and religions, and we have shifting cultural contexts now which are impacting the values of the nation. We had economic inequality. We have economic inequality. There was political hierarchy. There is political hierarchy. There are many idols and cults then, and there are many idols and cults now. And I'm not just talking about organized religions. I'm talking about what does America worship? On Sunday, where does America go for church? To the living room to watch football games, right? Pornography, people outspend pornography, money on pornography, by a long way over all professional sports combined. $9, million, $9 billion a year, $14 billion a year. What are the other things we worship? Money, materialism, our status, our fame. Look at all of the things people do to be famous on social media. So if you don't think that we're a nation of cults, I would ask you to really look closely at how Americans live their lives. And so the playing field is the same, but we have a playbook. It's a book of Acts. It's just as applicable today as it was 2,000 years ago. The same things are happening today as they were 2,000 years ago. The only difference is we have indoor plumbing and they didn't. I think I've hit all my stuff. That's good. The last thing I would say is, as Christendom declines and falls apart, many people, many people raised in the church or around the church or who are in the church are mourning the decline of what they think of as the church. I would say to you, the decline of Christendom is a great thing. 
And here's why. Under Christendom, there was, in Western culture, there was one religion. Now there's all kinds, but people are open and they're, they're listening. Back then, if you fought the church, you fought God. In fact, Vicky and I watched a video recently about the Camino de Santiago in Spain, where you take this pilgrimage, and seven people were there. One was an Episcopal priest, and the other six talked about spiritual things, and what they, they rarely talked about God. What they talked about is why they didn't like the church, how the church manipulates people, how the church takes their money, how the church is about power. And so the decline of the culture of church is a good thing because now in our communities of faith, in our house churches, in our friendships, we can show people what Jesus is really like. And it's not this monotheistic institutional bully that tries to change your life. We can speak to their hearts. We can speak to their needs. We can offer them healing and wholeness, things that most of Christendom never did. So what I'll leave you with is to what or who do you give your allegiance? Is it to Jesus? Is it to one of the many cults that our, that our culture worships and puts before us? Do you feel equipped to advance the kingdom? And if not, what can you do about it? And then what are the things that are holding you back from bringing the kingdom on earth? Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that you would open our eyes Help us to see within ourselves and understand where our allegiances lie, what our priorities are. Place in each one of us a longing, a thirst, a hunger for more of you, for a closer, deeper walk with you. Fill us with the fruit of your spirit to the point where it overflows to those around us and they can see the love and the peace and the patience evident in our lives because we know Jesus and we walk with you. Holy God, I praise you for the people in this room. I praise you for this family of faith. I pray your hand would remain on them and with them. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and would you worship with us as we respond?